Hi, welcome back to Bush History. I'm David Bush, and you are listening to my third podcast in my AP US History Review Series. These podcasts were originally YouTube videos that I've converted over to podcasts, and you can get additional information at www.bushhistory.net or on YouTube under Bush History. This particular review video is going to cover the years 1841 to 1858, so we're going to go through the whole Manifest Destiny time period, and we're going to go into the critical decade, the decade right before the Civil War begins. So listen and enjoy, and as I said, additional information can be found at www.bushhistory.net. So now we are into the 1840s. The failed presidency of Martin Van Buren gives way to the election of 1840, and we have Tippecanoe and Tyler too. William Henry Harrison and John Tyler running for president of the United States. And they went... Martin Van Buren is no longer part of the picture. Harrison becomes president of the United States. And then, after a long bellicose speech, rainy day, bad day out, but go ahead, Harrison dies about five weeks into his presidency. Harrison is kaput, and John Tyler becomes president. John Tyler becomes president, and he is really more of a Jacksonian than he is a Whig, and such the age of Jackson continues. Uh, Dorothy Dix is on here simply as a marker because the age of Jackson also ushered in a lot of reform movements because common people thought they could cause change. Dorothy, Dorothy Dix represents the asylum movement, but we also have abolitionism growing, we have the women's rights movement growing, we have temperance, we have Horace Mann in education, we have the transcendentalists with Walden and Thoreau, uh, Emerson, I'm sorry, and Thoreau. So there's a lot of things going on, and she's just a marker, so I don't forget that part. Then, in 1845, uh, a newspaper publisher named John L. O'Sullivan comes up with a theory of manifest destiny. We will manifest our destiny. We're going to make it happen. And he pretty much says that it is the nation's manifest destiny to overspread the whole of the continent. And providence declares it. That God says we should go west. And, of course, we're the United States. God says it. We're going to go do it. So we go west. And what that meant for James K. Polk, who is now president, was to annex Texas. Annexing Texas, Texas, a land filled with slaveholders and slaves because the Mexican government had allowed them to bring those slaves in before their independence. So if you annex Texas, you're going to increase the amount of slaveholding states in the country, possibly throwing off the balance in Congress. So it would have been debated for a number of years, going all the way back to Andrew Jackson. He said, I'm not touching this one. But James K. Polk goes for it. And then a dispute occurs. Where is the border? Well, the United States says the border is the Rio Grande River, which is the present river, so you know how this ends out. And the Mexican government says, no, 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 it's a couple of hundred miles north, it's the Nueces River. So we have a war over a border dispute, and that is known as the Mexican War. Zachary Taylor, excuse me, James K. Polk doesn't want to run away from a fight, and there we go, we have the Mexican-American War. It's a horrible defeat for the Mexicans. There's a debate what's going to happen with this land. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo basically turns around and gets us the entire southwest portion of the United States going all the way to the Pacific Ocean, including California. David Wilmot from Massachusetts hatches an idea that there should be no slavery in the Mexican session. The idea doesn't go too well because he's from Massachusetts. He says, wait a minute, it's all, far, you know, it's, it's all arid land. You can't farm that. And instead, Henry Clay says, why don't we make a popular sovereignty? 
And the idea of popular sovereignty does catch hold in the Mexican session, and the states will decide for themselves. Of course, no one lives here. It's an easy decision. However, in the fall of 1848, gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in California, northern California, not far from Sacramento. And so begins the California gold rush. Imagine this. Mexico owns the land for years, Spain before them, and no one found the gold. We're in there a couple of months, and poof, we find the gold. Sometimes you get lucky. So California, the country almost tips to the west as the largest known gold reserve in the world is now going to be mined. And people go into California by the thousands hoping to get rich. Slaves don't go. So California wants to be a state. Well, California wants to be a state, that's going to be a problem. Because California is going to want to be a free state. And what that means is that you're going to have a huge state that's now a free state. So now what do you do? There was some debate about dividing California, north and south, kind of like north and south Carolina. And that debate failed quickly because the northern part of California would get all of the gold and the south would get nothing. So that's not going to fly. Zachary Taylor becomes president in 1849 because James K. Polk said, I'm only doing one term and I'm out of here. He's the last of the Jacksonians, so to speak. And Taylor says, this shouldn't be any kind of discussion. Taylor says, no, California's free and that's it. But he dies in the middle of the debate. And Henry Clay writes, again, another compromise. He's the great pacificator, the great compromiser. He writes the Compromise of 1850. And the Compromise of 1850 is called an omnibus bill because there are many parts of it. He says that California can be a free state provided, provided that we get a fugitive slave law. A fugitive slave law saying that a runaway slave anywhere in the country can be captured and brought back into slavery, into a slaveholding state. Which essentially says that if a slave runs from Alabama to New York, we can send bounty hunters up north, they can capture the slave and bring him back to South Carolina. You can understand that is going to be a horrible idea. And it's going to cause Harriet Beecher Stowe to write Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin is basically a book that talks about slaves running away and that they have to end up in Canada. The cool thing about Uncle Tom's Cabin is it was a serialized novel before it was made into a book, meaning it occurred week after week for about 42 weeks, so the story was alive. And it was a heart-wrenching story about slaves trying to get their freedom, and one slave, Uncle Tom, who remained loyal in his belief to God throughout, and ultimately is crucified as Christ was crucified. Anyway, the response to this Fugitive Slave Act are personal liberty laws within the state, within the various states. So states can now make laws saying that you could not turn in runaway slaves, but the federal government said you had to turn in runaway slaves. So you have those personal liberty laws occurring, and now we have a state-federal conflict again, because we know that goes kind of on, 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 and on. And in 1852, the remaining two of the three kings, Daniel Webster and Henry Clay, die and probably with them, maybe the loss of reason in the United States government, because it's going to get much worse after this. In 1853, the idea of the Gadsden Purchase occurs. It's the southern part of the New Mexico Territory, so we can build a railroad that never occurs there, but the idea is let's do it anyway, let's get that land, and maybe we will do that. In 1854, as we're going west now, we want to go west into Kansas and Nebraska. 
Stephen A. Douglas wants to be president of the United States, and his idea is if we can take Kansas and Nebraska and make them into states instead of just territories, we can run a railroad. If we can run a railroad, we can get to California. If I can say I did that, I will be president of the United States. Any authors, something called the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which basically says that there will be popular sovereignty in the Kansas and Nebraska territories. They can vote whether they will be free or slave. However, you need 50,000 people. So before you get to 50,000 people, what you have is a huge fight. You have a new, huge fight largely in Kansas. And in the middle of that debate, the Republican Party will be born with its mantra of getting rid of slavery, period. That's the whole reason the Republican Party is going to exist. Imagine, imagine a crazy liberal idea of getting rid of slavery coming from the Republican Party of the 1850s. Because it's not the same Republican Party we have today. It has many incarnations along the way. At the same time, Franklin Pierce had hatched an idea, well, let's go south instead of north, and the Austin Manifesto is hatched. The Austin Manifesto is the basic idea that let's go into Cuba. Cuba has slaves, let's take Cuba, let's buy Cuba, and we will increase the size of the United States by taking Cuba. It's a secret when it's found out about, the idea is quickly kiboshed, and that becomes the end of that. In 1856, as a result of Kansas, Nebraska, we have fighting going on in Kansas between free soilers from the New England Emigrant Aid Society, Irish people from the Northeast, and border ruffians from the neighboring state of Missouri. And that's called Bleeding Kansas. Um, a speech is delivered called The Crime Against Kansas by a guy named Andrew Butler. And as a result of that speech, Charles Sumner, I'm sorry, Charles Sumner gave the speech, Crime Against Kansas. And as a result of that speech, in which Charles Sumner criticizes Andrew Butler for his feelings, he's going to be attacked by Preston Brooks, who is Sumner's nephew. And it's actually in the Senate chambers. And Brooks almost beats Sumner to death. It becomes a Sumner-Brooks affair. So now the argument about slavery has found its way into Congress. At the same time, John Brown is getting busy with his argument about slavery. And we have the Potawatomi Massacre, the first of several of his raids in which pro-slave people are killed in Potawatomi. So now, in 1856, going into 1857, we also have something called the Lecompton Constitution. The Lecompton Constitution is a pro-slave constitution written in Kansas, endorsing Kansas as a slave state. Well, the reality is the Free Soilers didn't vote because they were driven out by it. But regardless, their reaction is going to be, by the way, the Topeka Constitution. Regardless, James Buchanan, now President of the United States in 1857, accepts Lecompton, shows his hands as being a pro-slave president. And shows it even more when in the fall of 1856, he convinces Roger Taney not to announce the Dred Scott decision until after the election further angering the nation and dividing the nation. Sectionalism really is occurring at a huge rate here. So in 1858, the number one topic in the United States is slavery. And in Illinois, there is a race for the Illinois State Senate. These are, and there'll be a series of debates called the Lincoln-Douglas debates between Stephen Douglas, the author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and Abraham Lincoln. This is not, these Lincoln-Douglas debates are not about the presidency. They are about the Senate race in Illinois. And people tend to make that mistake. But what does happen is we find out who Abraham Lincoln is and who Stephen Douglas is in these series of debates. Well, ultimately, Lincoln talks about containing slavery and 
Douglas talks about popular sovereignty working. Popular sovereignty is more democratic. It just doesn't assume that people are going to kill themselves over it. And Douglas wins, and Lincoln loses in 1858 in Illinois. And you just have to wonder, you just have to wonder if Lincoln had won in 1858, if he would have even run for president in 1860. And of course, we have to remember there are economic things going on. And Drake's Folly is the real first discovery of oil in the United States in 1858.